Welcome to the podcast of Unity Fort Worth. In it, you'll hear this week's message and meditation. If you'd like to hear and see the complete service, you can always find it at unityfortworth.org or on the Unity Fort Worth Facebook page. Unity Fort Worth focuses on positive and practical Christianity with a willingness to explore the entire world of religion and spiritual thought. Unity Fort Worth streams live every Sunday at 11 a.m. Thanks for listening to the Unity Fort Worth podcast. Today we're going to talk about the second desert story that's important in the Lenten season. As you remember from last week, the first desert story was about Moses, Moses bringing the Israelites out of Egypt and then Joshua bringing him into the promised land. Today's desert story is quite different and yet very similar. <clears throat> 40 days in the desert, the temptation of Christ. So last week we had the desert story from the Hebrew scriptures and there's quite a few of them. And this week, we're talking of, about the desert story in the Christian scriptures. And they're different in tone, different in how they are written, different in how they are supposed to make us feel, and also what they're about. And yet, they're connected. There's some important connections between both stories and why they are so relevant throughout Lent. So in the 40 days in the desert, we have Jesus all by himself. Very different to Moses being a whole bunch of Israelites, right? So on one hand, we can see this as, well, one is community and the other one is individual. When we walk into the desert, we have different meanings that we can assign to it, either being by ourselves, retreat, going into the wilderness, kind of like experiencing chaos. And we can do this individually, all by ourselves. We don't need anyone to help us with, right? We want to be in chaos. Do we need any help? No, right? But we can also help each other to be in chaos or help each other to go within. That's what the difference there is. And in the first few verses of chapter 4 in Luke, it says that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, and I highlighted what's really important here, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days, and remember what 40 means? However long it takes, right? He was tested by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. So that's how this all starts out. So what's always important, especially in the Christian scripture, is to understand what comes before a story and what comes after. Remember, we're not looking at the historical facts. We're not looking at the literal interpretation. We're looking at the symbolic metaphysical interpretation. So what came before? First, in uh, chapter 3, Luke writes about the proclamation of John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist was the one who baptized Jesus. He was the one who initially refused, but then essentially did, because that's what he needed to do. 
And then he baptized Jesus, and then there was a little bit about the ancestry of Jesus, which is really important to kind of, for the Jews to understand that Jesus was the Messiah, which was the claim, right? And then after that baptism, you know, a lot of things happen. What, you know, the, the heavens open up, the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. That's why we see this in this first few verses. But then he takes that Holy Spirit right after the baptism, right after being recognized by God as his son, and goes into the desert. And you're going to ask yourself, why? What's the symbolism behind that? And then after the testing of Jesus, it's the beginning of the Galilean ministry. That's when he officially starts his ministry, not before the desert, after. You'd ask yourself why that will be. And then he gets rejected. And then he starts, according to Luke, and there's other miracles that, according to other Gospels, that uh, happen a little earlier or different times. But according to Luke, just to fall in line with Luke's um, uh, just timing here, the first kind of miracle, the first act that Jesus does in his ministry is to clean that man from, from an evil spirit. Okay? So why is this all important? It's important because that's exactly what we go through. We go through a baptism. We go through a testing, a temptation. And then we start our ministry. And then we get to work our ministry. And often when we start a ministry, we get rejected. Now, you might sit here and say, well, I'm not a minister. Why would I start a ministry? Who cares if I start a ministry? I don't want to start a ministry. That's too much work. Believe me, it is a lot of work. <laughs> but you need to see the ministry as something different. Ministry is for us to something find that we want to bring forward that we always wanted to be, always wanted to do, always wanted to change about ourselves. And so we need to first baptize what's standing in the way of that. That's kind of like what baptism means, especially baptism with water. It means to clean away the error thoughts, our limitations that we put on ourselves, so that we can then start that ministry. Here's a timeline that you can find online. If you Google Jesus' uh, ministry timeline, you find a whole bunch of those graphics. But you can see here that he starts, it starts around 30 years old, when Jesus was about 30 years old, around the year 30, common era. And you see the baptism of Jesus. And if you look, you see that's reflected in all four Gospels. And then you have some of the miracles, some of the works that are only reflected in John. And then we're picking up again, <clears throat> rejected in Nazareth, which is the rejection of Jesus in the synagogue and his works and so on. So you see that's officially before his baptism, not much happened. We have like one story when Jesus was 12 years old, but then we have basically nothing until he was 30 until he was ready, until he was ready to be baptized. Just to give you a little bit of context. So there's an evolution that we have here. It's an evolution that we see, and when you look at the works of Jesus throughout the Bible, if you read from the beginning to the end, 
you actually start noticing that Jesus himself evolved. He wasn't perfect, so to speak, as in he knew everything and he did everything the way he was supposed to do. He got angry and he made mistakes and things like that. It was an evolution from the very beginning to the very end. Why is that important? It's because that makes it relatable for us. If we look at Jesus Christ as being this ultimate perfect being that cannot make a mistake, how easy, will it be, how easy would it be for us to relate to that person? Not at all, right? We will go, and many actually still do in the Christian faith. Many put him on a pedestal or up on a cross and say, oh my God, I can never go there. Not so here. Here we believe that we are very much the same. We very much have the same spirit, the same Christ essence within us. And as Jesus went through an evolution, a spiritual evolution, we are going through that spiritual evolution as well. And Lent is exactly about that. We may think of fasting, we may think of repenting and all these things, but ultimately it's a chance for us to let us evolve spiritually. I'm making another noise here. Let me see. Do I need to change this, Andrew? All right. There you go. So, Jesus Christ, what does that mean? This is a kind of like a real, real basic paraphrase for some of the Charles Fillmore's interpretations, our co-founder in Unity. So Jesus Christ is basically the incarnate God principle, our birthright. That's what Jesus Christ represents. And I often teach in class that when we think of Christ or Jesus Christ, we shouldn't think of Christ being his last name, right? Often people think it's his last name. It's not. It's a title. It's actually official, an official title that was used in Minor Asia 2,000 years ago, Christos or Christos, depending on the translation. But we should use Christ as a way of relating to it. So often actually do a little exercise in class and say, why don't we all say our first name and then put Christ afterwards? And we do this a couple of times and do these rounds and start resonating with that. John Christ. Jane Christ. Jean-Marie Christ. Susan Christ. Right? And you keep going and keep going until you start feeling that that is us. It's not just that one person. The other thing, is it not working for me? There you go. Baptism with water, earthly, that's an earthly way of looking at baptism, basically means letting go of error. John the Baptist person was to clean away anything that stood in the way of Jesus' ministry. And when we think of baptism of water, that's what we should think about. It's cleaning away, letting go of all the error that we have. Error thinking, missing the mark, limitations, our judgments, we just leave them away. It's important because, okay, 
still not working. Because the baptism with Holy Spirit is the spiritual baptism, right? There's two baptisms. I used to do um, full immersion baptism, even in a unity church, even though it got a lot of unity ministers upset for me doing that. <laughs> but the cool thing was, when you go on the water, that could be representative of your baptism with water. As you dunk on the water, you're letting go of all your sins. And then <clears throat> you're bringing yourself out, and that's the baptism with fire, the baptism with Holy Spirit. It was such a beautiful thing to do, you know, and I did it like, I don't know, 20, 30 people maybe, you know, put them in, baptism with water, brought them out, baptism with fire. It was a nice little symbolism that you could do. So we then spiritually baptized, we are spiritually baptized, and that is, once all the error is gone, what is left? Truth, right? Once we truly let go of everything that is not us, the one thing that remains is truth, and then the Holy Spirit is affirming that. We're using the Holy Spirit to affirm that. So then, oh, this is going to be fun today. Let me see this, okay. Then entering the desert, right? So think of the story, but now think of yourself. What does entering the desert mean for us? Well, it could mean that we're discerning what is false and what is truth. We need to kind of retreat, don't we, sometimes? Because if, it, if, if you're like me, then you get up in the morning and you have pretty much your whole day planned out. And if you're not very careful and actually plan for little breaks and lunchtime and little relaxation, all you do is just go busy, 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 busy. Anyone does that? A right? couple of you, right? One person. Come on, guys. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Thank you. All right? So, so what we need to do, one of the interpretations of going into the desert is actually to slow down, right? To slow down that when we have baptized let go of our error, and when we are inspired by the Holy Spirit, which is really just recognizing the parts of ourselves that are true, then we have to give ourselves time to learn to discern between the two. Because if we don't give that time, no one is going to do, do it for us. You can't just call up your friend and say, hey, I just got baptized. Would you tell me what is wrong with me and what is right with me? Because guess what? They're probably projecting their own problems onto you. We gotta figure this out ourselves. And that's why in this story, Jesus goes there to the desert alone. There's some things that we have to do alone. <clears throat> we can use the community, of course. We, we use the help of the community so we can do this journey by ourselves but some of the things, we just got to do it ourselves. We can't give up responsibility to someone else, which is kind of like one of the favorite things that many people do. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> like the spiritual couch potato I talked about, right? Being a spiritual couch potato means, oh, I have all so much stuff to do. Hey, God. Why don't you take some of that away from me? You know, you wouldn't believe when I listen to how people relate to spirituality and all that, how much of their power 
they are giving up to someone else or something else. Rather than saying, well, wait a minute, I'm responsible, I, I think I have to do this myself. You know, Jesus didn't go, hey, thank you, God, I'm so glad you recognized me as your son. Can you just help me out here and go into the desert for me? Wouldn't that be grand? He didn't do that. He went by himself. And that's the ask that we have in this season. And actually, every day, we have to take that journey ourselves, and we have to be responsible for that journey. <clears throat> All right, let's go. One more, fasting. What does fasting mean, right? Because it's so popular in Lent. I mean, I grew up, I was Protestant, not even Catholic, and yet, guess what? No fish, and no, no meat on Friday, only fish, right? That was our Lent thing. Not very effective, if you ask me, when it comes to our spirituality, but hey, this is what we did. Anyone else did that? No meat, yeah? Some Catholic kind of background, and okay. Episcopalian, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm just <clears throat> you know, Swiss are very simple folk. We have like two churches, Protestant and Catholic, and that's it, right? So we, we, we are very, very simple people, as you already know by now. So, so fasting, fasting is, is really more than just the fasting of the physical. It's the abstinence from error thinking. So we have the baptism again here, the letting go of the things that are false. But then when we go into the desert, we are practicing abstinence because guess what? Just because we tell ourselves, well, this is really not me, so I'm letting go of that. Guess what, what usually happens a few minutes later? It just creeps back in, doesn't it? Like some of those really deep beliefs, like I'm not good enough, or I'm not lovable, I will never have a good job because they, I'm not worthy and all that. Those things are so deep, they just keep coming back in. So, so fasting means to try to stay abstinent, abstinent from it, right? Not just letting go, but keep away from it, not by fighting it, but just stay away from it and focus on what's really going on. Let's see, do we have one more? Yes, we do. And then temptation, don't know if you can see it, it's just above Rodney's head there, temptation. It's a very, <laughs> there you go. No, you're good, Rodney. You're good, Rodney. No, <laughs> I just thought it was funny. I'm looking at it and it says Rodney and then temptation. So, hey. Uh, so temptation is a proving, a testing, and the trying, right? And I wouldn't see it so much as something really terrible to go through, but really something playful. Is we using the temptations as something that we can do in order to prove to ourselves that we can actually be different and better and change. We're testing it. I always like to say in classes, let's just do an experiment. You don't have to believe any of it, of what I say. But I invite you to test it for the next few weeks. And if it works for you, great. And if it doesn't, move on. You know, beauty, The beauty about unity is you, you can believe whatever you want. 
you can try anything I tell you, or you learn in classes, or you're reading books, and if it doesn't work for you, and you say, ah, Unity is not for me, we're, we're, you know, find something else. You're your own judge. You're your best judge in terms of what you need, right? So temptation's about experimenting. Experimenting of some of the stuff that we are doing and we are supposed to learn. Okay, big test. I know it's, it's only been a couple of weeks. Ash Wednesday asked you, how many temptations? Who, can, who remembers? How many temptations? Oh, I want to hear a louder one. Come on. One, two, three. There you go. Okay, so three temptations, right? And um, here's actually, this is 12th century mosaic that shows those three temptations. And um, it's kind of beautiful because it combines some of the different accounts from the different gospels because we have the angels there, we have the fallen angel, we have the three temptations, and so on. Very beautiful visual. But here are the three, turning stone into bread, throwing himself down from the pinnacle, and then worship the devil to reign over all the kingdoms. So those are the temptations. Guess what? <clears throat> it's not just how this works. When we go into the desert, don't expect the devil to show up and say, turn the, turn the stones into bread, right? That will be way too easy because now you know you're not supposed to do that, right? The, the little evil part in ourselves, which is really the negativity that we learn to put on us, right? That part of ourselves will, is very tricky. Some of us call it the ego, right? And we give the ego some, a lot of power sometimes. Even though the ego is useful, uh, for some things it's not very useful when it comes to growing spiritually, if we want to give ego even uh, an actionable part here. So don't expect it all to work out um, just as you read it. The ego will find a way of tricking you. So it helps actually to understand, well, what is turning stone into bread really about? It's about not worldly pleasures alone, but spiritual also. But the traditional view is actually really helpful too. It's about wealth. Whenever we get inspired or drawn by wealth, that's often away from being centered. That's kind of like a sign that there is a temptation. Same goes for throwing himself down from the pinnacle. It's about righteousness, not selfish, right? Traditional, it's about fame, wealth and fame. And then the third one, worship the devil to reign all over the kings. And of course, we are only supposed to believe in one God. There's only one presence and one power. The traditional view of that test is power itself. So wealth, fame, and power. When you learn something new and you go into the desert, which means you spend some time in meditation, in prayer, by yourself, going for a walk, contemplating the new thing that you want to try, and then you can ask yourself if those temptations are when they come in. You can kind of wonder, well, is it about my wealth? Is it about my fame? Or is it about my power? Those are often some of those major um, themes that come up. So starting a ministry, 
it's not just Jesus' journey alone, right? So here we have what happens after the temptation. Then Jesus, in the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and the report about him spread through all the surrounding regions. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone, and so on. So he came out of the desert successfully, successfully rejected those temptations, which means that he is now able to hold the Holy Spirit and to take the baptism that he has received, both John's baptism with water and the Holy Spirit baptism with fire, he was able to retain that. Not everyone does. And that is also seen by this story here, which comes right after the verse. The first thing that Jesus does he goes into the synagogue, and by the rabbi, he's given a scroll, and he's reading from that scroll. And that scroll is from Isaiah 61, chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. It's a beautiful, it's actually quite a little bit longer than that, but it's the first few verses that are really relevant here. Because it defines Jesus' ministry about the oppressed, about the brokenhearted, about the captives, and about the prisoners. Guess what? Who are the oppressed? Who are the brokenhearted? Who are the captives? And who are the prisoners? Any guesses? We are. That was Jesus' ministry. And he clearly knew that. There's a little passage after this. He scrolls up the scroll and he talks about the works of Elijah. And Elijah, um, you know, the, the idea that the Messiah, Messiah will be the reincarnation of Elijah. Um, so he, he references that. And out of that means comes, comes then the rejection. He's being rejected right at that point. He even says, and that is so true, I find, in our own lives, that when you go back to your hometown and you try out something new, the hometown that has always know, known you as, you know, little Jean-Marie doing this and running around and making trouble, and then I come back as a minister, guess what? The first people that will reject the very new thing that we all do is our own people. And that's what's happening in this story. And it happens because that's not what the, the, the people in charge want. They don't really care too much about the oppressed, brokenhearted captives and prisoners because that's the people that don't have a lot of money and they won't pay um, too much into the synagogue, but that's Jesus' ministry. Jesus came here to only do that. Why is this so important? And why does this belong into our own considerations to be in our own ministry? Because when we finally get in touch with that truth and we go into the desert and we spend some time alone and we fight, those, fight away those temptations and then we finally are solidifying the one thing that is true, which may be that we 
think we've got to change something in our lives. Maybe we change a job. Maybe we move away. Maybe we change quite a few things in our lives, like how we relate to our families, partners, and things like that. That can be very upsetting, not only for us, but for others. Often, when we come out of that period of wilderness, and we have this conviction for ourselves. Remember from Christmas, I said, it's like a little the baby Jesus. It's so small and so vulnerable, that new thing, that when we do it, and we have a lot of rejections coming against us, what often happens? Guess what? We squash it again. So just like the birth of Jesus, which is the birth of something new in ourselves. The Lenten season is a season for us to practice, to practice all these things. Let go of what is false, go into the desert, fight those temptations, bring out something new that's true, and then when the rejection might come, doesn't have to, might come, we need to learn to stand strong. Because it all connects from Lent to resurrection. We are preparing ourselves from Lenten season to the resurrection. Ultimately, the resurrection is us coming out anew. And both stories, the story of Moses and the story of Jesus in the desert and the Israelites, both stories are true. They're individually true and the collectively true, symbolically speaking, of course, in that helping us to bring something out that is new. And I want to finish with this. We're all in this together. With this quote here, before we move into meditation. And the reason why I like this quote so much is because I think it's the number one thing that we often miss about the teachings, not only that Jesus Christ brought to us, but the Buddha brought to us and many other teachers brought to us. I don't know if you know of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, but he said once, if we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each man's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. Let me repeat this again. If we could read the secret history of our enemies, we should find in each man's life sorrow and suffering enough to disarm all hostility. Why do you think that is important in relationship to Jesus' ministry? Who did he focus on? The people that were rejected by society, right? What was one, one of Jesus' commandments? Love one another, love your enemy. And a couple of weeks ago, you know, I talked about how I had this experience with um, my heart breaking apart when Elaine was in so much pain. And I came to a realization that that's the pain, the breaking apart of our hearts that we need to learn to have for all of us, even for our enemies. And I love Longfellow's 
quote here because he's emphasizing that even our most difficult enemy, even the most difficult person we can think of in our lives right now, the one person that annoys us so much, the one person we have already blocked from our phones, and we have put an email filter there that the email is just disappearing magically, that one person, most likely, is just as suffering as we are sometimes, and just has a very similar history and a very similar story than we do. And the beauty about Jesus' ministry is that he understood that. He understood that so deeply in his heart that even if someone really he didn't like or someone he couldn't resonate with, he would remember that they also probably suffered just like he did and is worthy of love. So if you forget everything I talked about today, which I hope you won't, because I'm going to quiz you on it in a couple of weeks. But if you forget everything I talked about today, I want you to remember one thing. Number one, everyone to some degree has their own journey of suffering and their own journey of what they need to get through in order to stay alive and to pick themselves up every day, everyone. It's hardly anyone, even the richest people in the world, and even those who are the most bubbliest that you have around, and even those who are the smiliest that you can think of, even those sometimes have moments that are hurtful and who need care. The second thing I want you to remember is that you, are deserving of that love from everyone, but most importantly for yourself. You are deserving of all the love in this world without limitation. So if you forget everything about the stories and the histories and the metaphysics of that, I want you to remember these two things. Everyone, to some degree, has just as much pain as you do, or has had just as much pain as you do, and is just as struggling as you do. And they deserve love. And the second thing, you are among those who deserve love. That is ultimately the ministry of Jesus. And I hope for all of us, that we can make this our own ministry in our own unique way. So let us take that into our meditation for today. Let us start with taking a deep breath 
allowing the breath to go all the way down in the depth of our body. And as we exhale, let's just imagine for a moment, we just let go of anything that needs to be forgiven. We breathe in the Holy Spirit and we exhale what is no longer true for us. And throughout this meditation, that is going to be our foundation, our rhythm. Inhale the baptism of fire, the Holy Spirit. Exhale the baptism of water, forgiveness. Allowing our body to relax and expand with spirit. Let us for a moment just recognize the perfection of what he is in the here and now. As we allow the Holy Spirit to come in and let go of those things, the regrets, the worries, and the judgments, let us find the purity of who and what we are the calmness, the peace, the grace, the love. Let us remember our true essence. And for a moment we step into the role of the Israelites as we escape Egypt, the darkness, the bondage, led by Moses, our own ability to draw the beauty out of us into this world. We resonate with the Israelites because these are the higher ways of being, of thinking and feeling and acting. And we're wandering around in the desert, not by ourselves, but together as a community, finding our way for however long it takes. But we are led by Moses, led by our own knowing that there is something for us to tap into, something to bring out, something to be more. And that is our guidance, that light that we seek. Now, by ourselves individually, for a moment, let's step into the footsteps 
of Jesus Christ. Let's not try to be him or copy him, but be the Christ ourselves. Be that whatever our name is, first name and then Christ following that. And as part of this big community, we step out into the desert by ourselves, not accountable to anyone but us, not responsible for anyone but us. We allow the Holy Spirit that we've been breathing in now for a couple of minutes to grow and expand and take over. For a moment we sit with the reality that there is much more for us to explore. A greater truth for us to get to. And as we keep breathing out and letting go and forgive and breathing the Holy Spirit, we're cleansing who we are. Now, when we do this together, and we do this by ourselves. Temptations may come in, and yet we already know they don't have to bother us. They don't have to sway us in any way. Temptations come and go, and yet the truth will always remain. Temptations may stick around for a while, and yet the Holy Spirit will always give us the strength to conquer them. So as we step out into our own ministry today, for the remaining few weeks until Holy Week and Easter and the resurrection that we celebrate, our own resurrection, We're filling our hearts and minds, bring them into perfect harmony and find ways to be grateful, to give thanks. As we formulate our ministry we allow that to be formed and framed through the gratitude that we have for ourselves and others. And for the remainder of Lent, that will be our focus. We give thanks to the fact that we have come here today and we're willing to listen be open and curious. We give thanks 
for everyone who showed up today to provide this service, to make it meaningful for us. We give thanks for ourselves and for others for learning to quiet down and to take the trip into the wilderness to grow and to learn more and be. And we give thanks for our ministry that we're about to enter into. And as a community, we support each other in those new endeavors with all our heart and minds and souls. And so it is. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Unity Fort Worth podcast. You just heard this week's message and meditation. For the live streams and more information, go to unityfortworth.org. 